Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, so what are we doing? Yeah, so past two weeks, uh, we've been going through a couple of the parables uh, that are in Matthew 13. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, uh, pull out your Bibles, turn to Matthew 13, and just to prepare uh, for the parables. Um, but yeah, the past couple of weeks, we've been going through the parables, and it wasn't really planned, this whole thing of going through the parables in Matthew 13. I just figured the, for the first one that I shared two weeks ago, I was like, oh, let's, let me share about the sower. And then the week leading up to the next week, I was like, well, let, let me just move on to the other parable. And then I was just like, yeah, I might as well just go through all the parables that are in Matthew 13. And so uh, that's what we're going to be doing for, the next, for tonight and for the next two weeks. We're going to be going through the rest of the parables in Matthew 13. And um, truthfully, uh, you may see it as just like a coincidence, like, oh, we happen to go through the parables. But honestly, it's, it's God, right? Like we're filled with the Spirit. Everything that we do is God-led if, so long as, you know, we're, we're following, we're reading the Word, we're praying and all that. So God wants me to go through the parables for a reason, and so I'm just going to be obedient. Maybe, uh, you know, some of you need to hear something that's in these parables. And I've actually really enjoyed my time in the parables, just preparing uh, for these messages, preaching them, talking about it afterwards. It's been a really good time, and I hope you guys have enjoyed it too. You know, some of you had talked about like, oh, it's really good. So I'm just going to roll with that, you know. Uh, I'm not going to, if it's not good, don't tell me. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> but I'm just going to roll with, 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 with that stuff right there. So I, I really do hope, actually, I really do hope that these messages have been edifying everybody because um, a lot of love and labor goes into these things, and I just, all I want is for all of us, like, if you guys are here weekly, my prayer is always, God, make us different when we leave here than how we walked in because that's exactly what I want for all of us. It's like, we walked in a certain way, we heard the word of God, and now something about us is different. And so we leave changed by the word of God. So tonight we'll be looking at the parables uh, of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. Uh, but before we do that, as always, let's make sure we pray. Father, thank you so much for tonight. And I do pray, God, that you would do a work tonight, that you would change us that we would leave this place differently than how we came, God. It's not, just, it's not a vain, repetitious word that I'm saying, God. It's, it's, it's the desire of my heart that we would be different, that we would be changed by your, by your word, by your spirit, and ultimately for your glory. And uh, I just pray that you would speak through me tonight, speak to all of us, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So before we get into the actual parable and as I turn there, I just want to remind everybody, um, you know, what a parable is and why Jesus spoke in parables. You know, for those of you who have been here the past couple of weeks, you're like, yeah, we know. Um, well, I'm going to say it again just in case there's somebody in here who doesn't know what a parable is and why Jesus spoke in parables. And if you're hearing it for the third time, well, you'll never forget, right? That's, that's good, right? So a parable, the word parable means uh, to cast alongside, to, to put something next to something else. And a parable is, is a story or an illustration uh, that is used to help explain uh, a truth or a concept. So you, you know, uh, the goal is to help the listener have a greater understanding of, of, of a concept 
Like last week, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. If you guys were here, we went over the parable of the wheat and the weeds. The landowner has a field of wheat, and the enemy plants some weeds among the wheat. And so this, the parable, this, car- this parable, this parable is cast alongside the reality that God has his people, the church, and the enemy, Satan, plants his own people among God's people, the church. So that's what a parable is. But what was the reason that Jesus spoke in parables? Well, one of the reasons was to fulfill the scripture that says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And so Jesus spoke in parables to fulfill that scripture. Jesus fulfilled a lot of scripture. That was one of the scriptures that he fulfilled when he came. Another reason was to fulfill another scripture where it basically says, you know, these people, they're listening. This is God speaking. These people are listening, but they're not hearing me. These people, they're seeing, but they're not perceiving. Their hearts are cold. They cover their own ears. They shut their own eyes. But if they would only listen, I could and would save them. So basically, Jesus is saying, I would love to change their hearts and their lives, but they're rejecting me. And with every parable shared, their rejection increases, thus removing any understanding that they may have had. Uh, But for those who do believe, uh, the parables are preached in order to grant us more wisdom and more faith in the kingdom of heaven since we long to actually understand these parables. We want to know what these things mean. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 13, 12, if you have your Bible open and you want to look at it, he says, Matthew 13, 12, he says, for whoever has more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So for whoever has, for whoever has belief, for whoever believes, more will be given to that person. And then they'll have more than enough. But whoever does not have, whoever doesn't believe, whoever does not have faith, then even what they have, even what little they have, will be taken away from them. But this isn't what God wants, ultimately, right? This isn't what God wants. Never forget that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is God's desire. That's in 1 Timothy 2.4. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, John writes that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, meaning he, is, he satisfied God's wrath. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus died for the whole world. So he wants all to be saved, and he died for all. But he will not force anyone to accept him. He will not force anyone to receive him. I know I told you guys to go to Matthew 13, but let's go, let's go to John chapter 1 real quick. Just a couple, couple gospels over. John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, to get a better understanding of this idea of God wants all to be saved, but he's not going to force anybody to accept him. John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. He, meaning Jesus, Jesus was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, He gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. 
So as I said, he will not force himself on anyone. It's your individual decision to either receive him or reject him. If you receive him, if you believe in his name, then to you he has given the right to be called a child of God, to be born again. But if you don't receive him, if you reject him, then you stand condemned. You're condemned. So you guys are open to John chapter 1 already. Let's go to chapter 3. Let's see what Jesus says about this, about this receiving him and not receiving him. John chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 16, and we're going to go to 18. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So verse 16 is the most beloved verse that everyone turns to when they want to they look at the love of God. They want to talk about the love of God, John 3.16, for good reason. It's, it's a beautiful truth that John 3.16 is. But in verse 18, that's where Jesus talks about those who don't receive and don't believe, that those who reject him. He says that once they disbelieve, they're already condemned. Once they decide, I don't believe, they're already condemned. No need to wait until you stand before God to verify this. Once you don't believe, you're condemned already. And it's your own doing. This is your, this is Whoever decides not to believe, it's, it's their own doing. It's their decision. Here's a parable of my own before we get into the parables of Matthew 13. Um, has anybody ever been involved in a class action settlement? Yes, a few people. For those of you who don't know what a class action settlement is, so there'll be situations where corporations will like do something wrong and it will affect, you know, it'll, it'll affect some people negatively. And so... A person or a law firm will sue this corporation on behalf of, of, of a lot of people, of anybody who could possibly be affected, and so they'll, they'll sue this company. And a lot of times, these companies don't want to go through the, through the process of you know, the legal battle and all that stuff, so what they'll do is they'll settle out of court. They'll say, all right, look, I don't want to take this to court. Here's a bunch of money. Go away. And so that's the settlement, and so now... Now that the settlement is there, now that this law firm has all this cash, this money is, is to go to the people to whom this negative thing might have affected. So um, I've been contacted for several of these over the years. Uh, some of them had nothing to do with me, and some of them were actually like super appropriate for, for my situation. I remember one time my wife, um, she received one, and it had to do with, with the, uh, remember when iPhones used to have like that home button? Like it was like an actual button that you'd press? I think it was like the iPhone 4 that she had. And the home button, according to this lawsuit, would, like, it would be all loose and it wouldn't work. Eventually it would break. You know? And so people decided to sue Apple because like, you're selling us bogus uh, products. And, uh, and sure enough, it was a thing because I remember my wife, uh, she used to, before she was my wife, when she had the iPhone 4, she would complain. She's like, God, oh, this home button, it's always... It's always getting stuck or it's not, it's not working right. Eventually got to the point where it, it actually stopped working. 
And then, um, and then that's when she discovered assistive touch. How many of you guys know what assistive touch is on an iPhone? Okay, for those of you who don't, praise the Lord that you don't know what assistive touch is because I think assistive touch is super annoying. I think it's the worst. So what it is is it's this thing you turn on. You turn on assistive touch. And on your phone, it'll, there'll, be, there'll be like a little, a little white circle on your phone. And you could put it anywhere, but it's this, this white circle that's on your phone. And you use that. You, you hit the little thing and it opens up a menu and you can like adjust your volume or you know, lock your phone or whatever. Basically, you can do everything so that you don't have to hit these buttons. You know, you don't have to click the little thing to silence your phone or anything like it's all on this little assistive touch thing so you never have to fiddle with these buttons ever again. And I hate assistive touch. I hate it because it's like this annoying thing on my screen. It's like, it's just there. And so my, when my wife discovered it, when we were still dating, she would randomly grab my phone, unbeknownst to me, she would grab my phone and then she would turn it on. I remember the first time she turned it on, I already knew that she was using it. And so then I looked at my phone, I was like, what is, why, why is this thing here? Because it's just in the way. And, and I tried, I tried, you know, I, I would do stuff on my phone, but it would get in the way. Like I'm trying to scroll or something and then I hit, I hit the little thing, it opens up the menu. It's just super annoying. And honestly, like, if the buttons are there, I'm going to use the buttons. And, but like with my wife, the whole thing, the, her whole thing is like, no, you got to take care of your things. So, you know, every time you push these buttons, like, you could damage them. So, like, you want to take care of your stuff. Meanwhile, like, I mean, I guess it's like a female thing, possibly. Because, like, with guys, like, I don't care. Like, like with my car. Like, I, the, the thing, I bought the thing so I can drive it. So I'm going to drive it. You know, but my wife, she's like, no, you have to be careful, you know, check the tires. Maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm a horrible man, you know, because I, like, I don't check tire pressure. I don't, I don't check the oil. And I, just, I just drive it. She's like, dude, this is an expensive car. Like, you spent more than a couple thousand dollars on this car. Like, you should take care of it. It's probably a guy-girl thing. But anyway, I hate assistive touch. And, well, that's not, has nothing to do. Class action lawsuit. Class action settlement. Um, so... So yeah, so actually there was one that I got that applied to me. So it was this company I used to work for. You know, they were making their employees work on their unpaid breaks, and, and it actually happened to me. You know, it was like for those that were in like a supervisor role. So like, you were a supervisor, you're on your, your unpaid break, but you know, they needed you out there because you were the only supervisor, so then you had to go out there and do stuff. And so people eventually sued this company, and they settled out of court, and now this money became available to all employees who worked at this company from this time to this time, from this year to this year. And you're basically saying, hey, if this, if this applies to you, fill out this form and send it back, and then we'll send you a check. So because it applied to me, filled out the form, sent it in, they sent me a check, right on, cool. Um, so basically, it was up to me to decide whether or not this situation applied to me. They provided me with the information, up to me to decide, yeah, this, this information applies to me, and then I take the next step to make sure I get compensation for that. But they weren't forcing me to take part in the settlement. That's the thing with these class action settlements. Like, they don't, they don't force you. Even if you were affected by this thing, it's not like they're like, no, you have to take this money. No, if, if I didn't want to take part in it, I could have just not submitted the form, and that would have been that. But had I decided not to submit the form, like if I would have been like, yeah, this applies to me, but I'm just not, I don't really care, I'm not gonna bother, I'm not gonna send this form in. And then when they were giving out the checks, 
if I would have been like, hey, like, what the heck, man? Like, the situation applies to me. Like, why didn't I get a check? That would be unreasonable because I'm the one who decided not to take the next step and submit the form so that I could get my check. That would be unreasonable. Similarly, for those who choose to reject Christ, it's not God's fault. It's not God's fault that you get condemned to hell. They chose to reject. They chose to reject their part in the spiritual settlement that took place when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. That's why Jesus says to those who don't believe, they're already condemned. It's not God, it's them. The salvation is there. All you need to do is receive it and repent. But before we move on to the, to the parables for tonight, I just wanted to circle back uh, to something that we read. We kind of just glossed over it for a sec. Uh, John 3, actually, John chapter, no, it's John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. So no, we are not all God's children. I just want to say that. We are not all collectively as the world all, we're not all God's children. You must be born again to be his child. You must be born again to be his child. You must receive him. You must believe in his name in order to be a child of God. We're all his creation. Every single one of us as human beings, we're all the creation of God. But we're not all God's children. Some people will say that, oh, we're all the children of God. We're not. The Bible is clear. To all who received him, to those he gave the right to be called the children of God. Just wanted to talk about that before we move on. So now let's go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. All right, we're going to be in verse 31, and we're just going to read two verses. It's the parable of the mustard seed. 1331. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the vegetables and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. So the past two weeks, we've had the privilege of Jesus providing the explanation the, for, for the parables that we've been reading, um, we're not given an explanation. Like, Jesus doesn't give us an explanation for this parable. Um, so we have to go based on what's already been revealed in Scripture. You always, script, you always use Scripture to interpret Scripture. That's how it works. So in the parable of the sower uh, the, from two weeks ago, in the parable of the sower, the seed, there was seed that was being planted in different soils. And so the seed that was being planted represented the word of God. That was the word of God, the preaching of the word of God. And the parable just before this one, before, just before the parable of the mustard seed that we just read, the seed that is being planted in that parable uh, is the, um, is, uh, are God's people. In the parable of, uh, of the wheat and the weeds, 
The man was planting seeds in his field. The good seeds were the children of God. And the field was, was a picture of the world. So if we apply the same items to this parable that we just read, where the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field, then the mustard seed is the church. The mustard seed is the preaching of the word of God. The mustard seed and the growth is the church since it's something that grows larger than anything around it. Like it says, right, he says, it's the smallest of the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the vegetables and becomes a tree. So the mustard seed is the preaching of the word of God planted, and then it grows, represents the church. And the field is the world again. That's, that's what the field represents. The mustard seed, which eventually grows large, like I said, the man took and sowed in his field, is the church of Christ that's in this world. And in this parable, we have birds again. We have birds again. It says, uh, the tree becomes, uh, becomes a tree, so that the excuse me, so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. So we have birds again. We have birds in this parable. And in the parable of the sower, birds represented Satan. That's what the birds represented. It represented Satan. So what we can comfortably say, based on what we already know from Scripture, what we can comfortably say that this parable means is that the kingdom of God, once again, starts off with the simple preaching of the word. The small mustard seed of the word being preached is how it begins. And although, even though the preaching of the word may be a small thing, it will spring up and grow into an enormous entity, the church. And it will grow so large that the birds, the enemy, will come and make their homes within the church. The church will grow so large that the enemy will come in and make its home within the church. And as I've stated in previous two weeks, uh, Jesus shared the parables, not so that we can hear them and then in our own power try to do something about it to change it. He shared these things simply to explain how it is. This is just how it is. This is just how it's going to be. The church would grow after Jesus ascended to heaven. The church exploded. I mean, the church exploded even when Jesus was still around, like even when he was still doing his ministry. Um, the Bible says that uh, when he rose again, when Jesus rose again from the dead, that he was seen by 500 people. He was seen by 500 brothers other than the 12 disciples, the original 12 disciples. So that means that these people were believers before he was even crucified and resurrected. That means that what started with 12 disciples originally shot up to a few hundred people as the living word of God was walking around and preaching the gospel. And even in the midst of that growth, even in the midst of the original 12 blowing up to a few hundred, you still had Judas, right? You still had Judas in the midst. And I'm sure there were many others like him who were part of those few hundred people. So even in the midst of that growth, the birds were nesting in the branches of the tree, even among the 12 disciples. And there was a point in Jesus' ministry in John chapter 6 where uh, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. He has two loaves of bread and five fish the other way around. He has five loaves of bread and two fish, and then he breaks that apart, and ends up feeding over 5,000 people. And so the next day, these people came looking for him because they wanted more. 
They just wanted more of what Jesus could give. So then he goes, so, so Jesus, seeing all these people coming around him, knowing, that, knowing what they want, they just want what, of what Jesus can give. But then Jesus goes into this whole thing of like, if you want to follow me, you need to eat my body. And if you want to follow me, you need to drink my blood. Of course, Jesus was speaking spiritually, metaphorically, but they were taking his words literally. And so they were like, that's weird. And many people got turned off. And then they turn around and they desert him. In John chapter 6, it says that from that moment, after Jesus said these words, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Those that turned back weren't really following him for the right reasons. It was all selfish. Give me more bread, like when you fed the 5,000 people. But when it came to real spiritual truths, they didn't want anything to do with it. And so they turned away. He fed 5,000 people. So even if just half of those people showed up the next day, if even just half of the 5,000 that he fed, if 2,500 people showed up, heard what Jesus said, when, and then the Bible says that many turned back and no longer accompanied him. So the birds were nesting. They were nesting in the branches of the tree among the 5,000 who experienced that miracle. The birds were there. How do we know that the birds were there? Because when Jesus spoke spiritual truths, they didn't like it, and they walked away. They deserted him. So the mustard seed will grow so large that the birds will nest in its branches, says Jesus in this parable. And then after Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people profess faith in Jesus Christ. The church is growing in the book of Acts. It's just growing because the mustard seed is being planted. But then you have characters like, if you guys have read uh, Ananias and Sapphira, you know, they, they decided that being a Christian is a competition of who can give the most. And so they lied about what they were giving. They sold their, they sold their property and they gave it to, to the church and they're like, Oh, we actually, you know, th th this, is all that, this is all that we got from it. We're giving you everything. And really, it wasn't everything. They were holding back some of it. And it's not that they were holding back. That wasn't the problem. The problem was like, this is everything, except for this right here. They lied to the Holy Spirit. So even amongst, even in the growth of the church, the birds were already nesting in the tree. The birds were there. And this is how it's been throughout the history of the church. This is how it's been throughout the history of the church. The simple preaching of the gospel, the small mustard seed being planted, will result in the explosion and growth of the church. But when that growth comes, so will the birds, the enemy, and they will nest among us, sowing discord, sowing dissension, sowing fighting, sowing bickering, sowing bitterness. And I know for a fact that these types of fleshly and sinful things exist within this church here at CORE. I know that because there's humans here. These things exist, but it needs to stop. We can't be that way. We cannot be that way. There needs to be grace and mercy among the believers, right? There needs to be forgiveness and compassion among the believers, right? There needs to be love and unity within the body of Christ, right? Peter seems to be the only one who agrees. We need to have these things within the body, right? Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 
This is how the world will know that Christ is real, by the love that the body has for each other. We cannot allow the birds nesting among us to take a dump all over us. How many of you guys have ever parked your car under a tree? How many of you guys have ever parked your car under a tree after you just washed it? Oh, man, that's annoying. That's so annoying. And all that bird crap just lands on your, on your car. Here's another parable, another, another parable of mine. The attitude that you have towards the bird crap that lands on your freshly washed car, have that same attitude towards the bird crap that exists within the body of Christ. Have that same hatred and, and just overall disgust. Like, man, I just washed that car. Now the birds are taking a dump all over it. Similarly, this is the freshly washed body of Christ. And here come the birds just dumping all over it. Have the same disgust and hatred and attitude towards these things. Because that's exactly what these, these sinful, fleshly things are. It's all bird dung. It's all bird dung. Every time you begin to have animosity towards a brother or sister for whatever reason, a bird just took a dump on you. Every time a brother or sister causes you to stumble in whatever way, a bird just took a dump on you. Every time and every time that you feel justified, every time that you justify your ill feelings and bitterness towards a brother or sister, a bird just took a huge dump on you. And I, I hate, hate, hate when the birds take a dump on me or my car uh, because A, it's disgusting, and B, now I have to wash my car again. Another five bucks. I don't have my own water hose. I really need to get one. I'm tired of spending money washing that car. Understand that we as humans, we as humans, we are so beset with many weaknesses. Does anybody agree with that? Like, we have so many weaknesses. We are weak, we're feeble, we're selfish little humans. That's who we are. And you will be hurt by others. Trust me. Everybody in here will be hurt by somebody else in the body of Christ. I was just talking to a sister earlier today. She felt like she was wronged by somebody in the body of Christ. Yeah, probably. We are all going to be hurt by somebody in the body of Christ, and you are also going to hurt somebody in the body of Christ. Just flat, that's, that's just how it is. But it's not our job to hold on to these things. It's not our job to keep a record of wrongs. You remember 1 Corinthians 13? Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Talk about this idea of holding grudges or keeping a record of wrongs. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. In verse 11, Paul writes, he says, I have done this so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, many of you, you may have heard this scripture before. You know, we're not ignorant of the devil's devices. We're not ignorant of, of the devil's schemes. Like, we know, we, know, we know the things that he does, right? But what is the context of this statement that he's making, that we're not ignorant of the devil's schemes? 
What's the context? What does Satan use to take advantage of the church? What does, what does Satan use to try to harm the church? Well, let's go back to verse 5. Let's go back to verse 5, and we'll read through verse 11. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. The punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, this one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. I wrote for this purpose, to test your character, to see if you are obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, it is for you in the presence of Christ. I have done this, I have forgiven, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So what's the scheme that's used by Satan in order to take advantage of the church in his attempt to destroy it? It's unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Satan uses the bitterness of unforgiveness to destroy the body. Because if he can get us to be mad at each other, then our focus is no longer on Christ. And this unforgiveness actually has great implications. This unforgiveness in our hearts has great implications. We need to be on the lookout for this. Let me show you the implications. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read verses uh, 14 and 15 to look at the implications of unforgiveness in our hearts. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. This is Jesus speaking. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. That's pretty self-explanatory. You don't really need to go into, like, the Greek or any of that. Like, it's, it's pretty simple. You forgive your brothers and your sisters, I'll forgive you. You don't forgive your brothers and your sisters, I will not forgive you. Plain and simple. So the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The seed of the gospel is planted. That seed grows into the church, the large church. And because of its size, this will invite the birds to nest within the branches, but we also need to be ready. We need to be ready not only for, the, for like the physical birds, like the actual people who are in the body, like the actual children of Satan that are in the body, but we also need to be ready for the attitudes of the birds, the attitudes and the thoughts of the birds that may seep into us, God's true church. We need to be on the lookout for these things, and we need to be ready. We need to be ready for when those attitudes come so that we can fight against it. It's quite literally a matter of life and death. Like, seriously, if you don't forgive each other, God will not forgive you. Man. Let's make sure we forgive people. But let's move on to the next parable. Let's go on to the next parable in Matthew 13. Let's go back to Matthew 13. The parable of the yeast. Matthew 13, and we're going to read verse 33. Short parable. 
He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it spread through all of it. So this parable is similar to the two that preceded it. The parable of the mustard seed that we just went over illustrates the infiltration of Satan in the form of birds, right? The parable of the, we- of the weeds, excuse me, that we went through last week, it illustrated the infiltration of Satan in the form of weeds. So now here we have the parable of the yeast. It illustrates uh, the infiltration of Satan uh, in the yeast or the leaven. Um, but once again, we don't have Jesus to give us the exact explanation of this parable. So once again, we use scripture to interpret scripture. So where else do we see Jesus mentioning yeast or leaven? Well, I'll tell you. Matthew 16, uh, just a few chapters over. Let's go to Matthew 16. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Jesus talking about yeast. The Pharisees and the Sadducees approached, and as a test, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when evening comes, you say, it will be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And then he left them and went away. And the disciples, they reached the other shore, and they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus told them, watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they were discussing among themselves, we didn't bring any bread. Aware of this, Jesus says, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you do not have bread? Don't you understand yet? Like, don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you collected of leftovers? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 people and how many large baskets of leftovers you collected? Why is it you don't understand when I told you, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? It wasn't about bread. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the yeast in bread. He wasn't telling them to be gluten-free. He was saying, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yeast, or leaven, is used to illustrate the teachings of the Pharisees. In other words, false doctrine. False teaching, false doctrine. Let's also turn to Luke chapter 12. See another example of, of yeast. Luke chapter 12. I'm just going to read one verse. Verse 1. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. In these circumstances, a crowd of many thousands came together so that they were trampling on one another. And he began to say to his disciples first, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So here again, plain and simple, Jesus is talking about leaven or yeast. And now he's using it to describe hypocrisy. So leaven, according to Jesus, is false doctrine and hypocrisy. And when we read that the kingdom of heaven is like 50 pounds of flour that has a little yeast in it, Jesus is saying that it only takes a little hypocrisy. It only takes a little bit of false doctrine for it to spread throughout the entire church. And if you look around, it's kind of what's happening. That's what's been happening. From the moment that the church started in the book of Acts, there's been little bits of yeast thrown in. 
which has brought us to the, to the mess that we have today. Churches that aren't holding to the Bible as the word of God. People running around calling themselves pastors who don't even necessarily think that God is real. Churches who would say that the things that are explicitly called sin in the Bible no longer are sin. Not today, not anymore. Churches who place more value on possessions and wealth and blessings rather than on the cross of Christ. That's the mess that we have because of the little bits of yeast that have been thrown into that lump of dough and it spreads. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that it only takes a little bit of yeast to leaven a whole lump of dough. It only takes a little bit. Anybody bake? Any bakers in here? How much yeast does it take to puff up a loaf of bread? A little bit, like a pinch. Yeah? No? Yeah, okay, sorry. Yeah, okay, perfect. Yes, yes. So yeah, it only takes a little bit of yeast to, to, to puff up a lump of dough. It doesn't take much. And if you remember some time ago, I was talking about having a glass of water. I remember, I remember Leone specifically when I, when I thought about this. You have, a, you have a glass of water, and there's a little bit of poop in it. Like, even just a little bit, just a little bit of poop. Like, that water becomes undrinkable. I don't care how little amount of poop is in that water. It's now undrinkable. It only takes a little bit of poop to make a glass of water. I'm talking about poop a lot tonight. <laughs> just, I've been changing diapers. I think that's what it is. <laughs> but it only takes a little bit of poop. I, I just I have to finish the sentence. <laughs> It only takes a little bit of poop to make a glass of water undrinkable. It only takes a little bit of poison to make a glass of water undrinkable. It only takes a little bit of yeast to leaven a whole lump of dough. It only takes a little bit of false doctrine to destroy your church. It only takes a little bit of hypocrisy to destroy your church. And when I say hypocrisy, I'm not talking about you know, us Christians, you know, we talk about repenting and, and, and turning away from sin, but then you fall into sin. You know, like I'm up, here telling, I'm up here saying, you know, Tony, you need to make sure that you love your wife and you serve her. And then meanwhile, I go home and I behave proudly with my wife, you know, because it's just like, because I'm stupid. I'm not talking about that kind of hypocrisy. I'm talking about the hypocrisy that says, I know God, but your heart is nowhere near him. That's the hypocrisy I'm talking about. Because in a sense, we're all hypocrites, right? We're all up here as Christians. We're all talking about you need to turn from sin. You need to come to Jesus. But how, man, how many times do we fail at that? So that's why when people talk about like, oh, I hate the church and I hate Christianity. It's just a bunch of hypocrites. It's like, yeah, you'd fit in perfectly. Because we're all hypocrites by that definition. But the thing is, we're striving for greater and greater holiness. We're striving for more. When we start, it's rough. But as time progresses, so long as we're seeking the Lord, reading the word, praying, gathering with other believers, you know, it'll just be, I'll say it, we're not going to be sinless, but we're going to sin less and less and less and less. But we continue to fight, regardless. We continue to fight. But the hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about is the kind that tries to hold others to a standard that you yourself will not lift a finger to hold. 
the hypocrisy that places burdens on other people. You have to follow God in this specific way, even though I'm not doing that at all. That's the hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about. The yeast has entered the body of Christ, and it's been puffing up, it's been puffing up since the church's inception. I say again, Jesus tells us these things not so that we can set out to change the way things are. This is just the way that it is. He's telling us these things in these parables just to tell us how it is. But it's up to us to fight, to resist when we come face to face with these things. So the kingdom of heaven is like a large lump of dough that a woman puts into a little bit of yeast and then the yeast will spread and permeate through the entire lump of dough. The church is that lump of dough, you guys. And the yeast of false doctrine and hypocrisy will spread throughout it. But we need to prepare ourselves to resist this deception that has already infiltrated these walls. Jesus says it would. I was debating whether I should share this thing. Yeah. I'll share it. So Jesus says in this parable, he says that a woman placed, it's like a woman who placed yeast into a lump of dough. In 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding, in, with an understanding of their weaker nature, yet showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. A lot of people might not like what that says, where it says, husbands, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature. The fact is, women are weaker in some areas, in the same way that men are weaker in some areas. Here's interesting. Whenever a scripture like this gets shared, like, live with them with an understanding of their weaker nature, or wives, submit to your husbands, whenever we read these kinds of scriptures, it gets, it gets awkward because people don't like to hear that. But what's interesting to me is that we'll flip it and we'll talk about how, we'll talk about how like men are dumb, right? Because they are. We'll talk about how like men are like not as sharp as women a lot of times because they're not. We'll talk about how men are not as observant as women because they're not. You know, we'll say all of these things about men and their shortcomings and be like, yeah, that's hilarious. Amen. So true. But then when we share a scripture like this, wives, submit to your husbands. How dare you? <laughs> it's like, yo, we just ragged on me for a while. Like, and, and this is like, this is Bible. You know, like this is the word of God. So anyway, I'm, I don't bring this up to say, ah, oh, women, they ruin everything. I'm just bringing up the point that men, men. Men, you got to step up. Men need to step up. In the garden, the serpent approached Eve. And he was questioning Eve about what God said in his commands. Where was Adam? Where was Adam? He was nowhere to be found. Where was Adam when the serpent approached his wife to talk to her? Men, step up. Don't send your wife to the door to go talk to the bad man. You go talk to the bad man, and you be strong in the word of God. It's not the woman's responsibility. 
We are the spiritual leaders, men. We are the spiritual leaders. We're to be the spiritual leaders in our home, and we're to be the spiritual leaders in the body. We're to be the spiritual leaders everywhere we go. And with that comes a responsibility. With that comes a responsibility to look out for your sisters in Christ. And when I say look out for your sisters in Christ, I don't mean, oh, I'm the protector of all my sisters and come be with me. I am your Superman. No. No. You have a responsibility to be the mature one in the word of God. Watch how you speak to your sisters. Watch how you communicate to your sisters, both verbally and non-verbally. What are your words and your body language communicating to your sisters? I bring this up. There was a, there was a guy I knew and back when I was a part of a young adults group. I don't know if I've ever shared this here, but what he would do, he was very irresponsible with the way that he behaved with the sisters. He would, he would see a sister, and he would think, she's pretty. I like her. Let me get to know her. He'd approach her, he'd get to know her, he'd spend focused time with her, he'd, they would, they, he would be texting with her at all hours of the night, all hours of the day, just spending all kinds of quality time with this sister, all for the purpose of figuring out, like, hmm, do I like this person? Meanwhile, this sister that he's giving uninterrupted time to, she's starting to catch feelings for this guy. He is just trying to, let me see if, uh, let me see if there's something here but he's approaching it the wrong way because the way that he's approaching it is communicating to the sister like, oh, I really like you and you're the only one that I see. That's what I mean when you need to be responsible. You are the responsible one. You need to watch how you behave around your sisters because he did that to many women. He did it to many sisters, leaving a ton of damage in his wake. To him, it was harmless. Oh, I'm just getting to know people. Like, I just, I'm trying to find my wife but he's not realizing how his behavior is affecting his sisters. And they would get hurt. Because eventually he would be like, oh, yeah, I'm not really that into you, and then he'd move on. And then they're like, wait, I thought we had a thing. So guys, be careful how you interact with your sisters. You are the spiritual leaders. Eventually you will be the spiritual leaders of your homes. But act like a spiritual leader right now and do the responsible, mature thing when you're interacting with other sisters in Christ. Make sure that your interactions are not causing harm to them. Don't be all touchy-feely with your sisters. Get your hands off of her. Why are you touching her? I try to, every time I see a sister, boom. First of all, I'm married, so I don't need to be all up on another woman. Pound it, what's up, how you doing? Keep my distance. Same thing, gentlemen. Get your hands off of her. Respect her. Honor her. Like it says in 1 Peter, show her honor. This is husbands to wives, but in general to your sisters, show them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life. Because they are. It's not supposed to go that far. All right. But in conclusion, those are the two parables for tonight. Those are the two parables that we're covering tonight. The parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast. The more that I've been studying these parables, 
uh, and preaching these messages, uh, the more that I'm reminded that this walk, this walk that we have as Christians, it's filled with obstacles. It's filled with obstacles. There will be battles. So we need to be firm in the Lord, and we need to be firm in the Word, which is saying the exact same thing. Jesus is the Word. So we need to be firm in the Lord, and we need to be firm in the Word. Jesus straight up, he straight up told us, within these walls, within the body of Christ, the enemy will infiltrate. The enemy will be in these walls. Last week, they were referred to as the weeds. This week, it's the nesting birds and the yeast. Whatever imagery is used, the point is that Jesus was very clear, and he was alerting his disciples, which means he's alerting us too, if we consider ourselves to be followers of Christ. When God wants to make something clear, or wants us to pay attention, he repeats it. He repeats it. You'll see that, you'll see that common throughout Scripture. Jesus repeated this concept in multiple parables that there will be infiltrators, the weeds, the yeast, the birds, three different parables talking about the same thing. When God wants us to pay attention to something or when something is serious, he repeats it. So I'd like the, the band to come up. I'd like the band to come back up. We need to be prepared to engage the enemy. I'm not one to be all like doomsday or, you know, like the world is ending, Armageddon. Like, like something is like, like a rock falls in Israel. Now the Lord is coming. Like I'm, I'm, not, I'm not one to be like that. I never really have been. I remember listening to a podcast with this guy. His name, uh, he's a pastor, uh, Rob McCoy. He has a church here in California. He also happens to be on our board of directors. Uh, but the, he's, he made this statement. And the context of this statement that he made um, it was, it was regarding, uh, you know, people who think that Christians don't need to, to be spending time, like, in the political world uh, because, you know, Jesus is coming back. So what's the point of, you know, like, getting involved in these things? Like, what's the point of getting involved? Like, this isn't our home. Jesus is coming back. So, you know, we just, we just focus on Jesus. And, and the statement that he made is that ever since he's been a believer— which is for decades, because he's, he's a much older man. He said, ever since he's been a believer, he's always heard the message that Christ is coming back soon. For decades, people have been saying, Christ is coming back soon. Like, Christ can come at any moment, for sure. That's, that's true. He can come at any moment. Nobody knows the, the day or the hour. Christ can come at any moment. But the problem is, because of this, Christians remove themselves. So for decades, people have been like, Christ is coming back, Christ is coming back with the result that the Christians are removing themselves from the culture, removing themselves from politics, removing themselves from all of these things. And then they're left wondering, like, and then the question, is, the question is asked, like, well, why do you think the country is in the moral position that it's in right now? Because we're not engaging. We're not engaging the culture. We're not engaging the politics of it. Because, well, no, just, just, just follow Jesus. Like, no, but we got, do you see the world? Do you, do you, like, do you see the things that are, are laws, things that are accepted legally? It's things that outright go against the word of God. 
And it's because Christians are removing themselves from, from that world. No, get in there. So he, makes, he made that statement. His whole thing is that Christ may come back tomorrow. He may come back decades from now. Regardless, we should still interact with the world as though we're going to be here for a while. So that means getting involved politically for the glory of Christ. Getting involved socially for the glory of Christ. And the point that I take from all of that is that regardless of when Christ is returning, the fact that he is returning should not cause us to just sit on our hands and wait for him to come back. Because in the meantime, the yeast is leavening the whole lump of dough. In the meantime, the birds are making a larger nest in the body. They're nesting in our branches. Don't sit on your hands. Use your hands to pick up your Bibles and get to know God. It's serious. It was serious enough for Christ to repeat it several times, this, this, this concept that there will be infiltrators in the church. So we need to make sure that we're seeking the Lord through his word and prayer and through fellowship with the body. And we need to be ready to engage the enemy that is within our walls. Perhaps God can save those that are, not, that, you know, that are in our midst who currently are his enemy. Maybe he can save them. Let's equip ourselves. Because we too, before he saved us, we were his enemies. That's what the Bible says. And while we were still his enemies, he died for us. So the enemies are they're within the body. Maybe God can save them too. So... We're going to sing these last songs. Um, if you guys want prayer, the leaders will eventually be up here. Um, gals, go with gals. Guys, go with guys. If you need, if you need prayer. Um, but let's pray. God, thank you so much for tonight. I pray that your spirit moved tonight. And I pray that your spirit would continue to fill this place as we sing songs of worship to you. Pray, God, that the, the, the scripture that was shared and the, and the preaching that was given would be all for your glory. We thank you for tonight. We love you, God. I love you. I love you. Thank you so much for saving me. I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.